Welcome to Piecing It All Together. Hey, I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. Let's piece it all together today. Maybe talk about that controversial subject that 81% who voted for Trump, evangelicalism. <laughs> Is that what we're talking about? I thought we were talking about fry bread. Maybe we can fry bread. Well, yeah. I think evangelicalism falls in that category. Oh, okay. I look forward to seeing how you tie uh, that together. Yeah, we'll tie that together too. Yeah. Good. And then I wanted to tell you about an interesting experience that I've been having. Um, but first, I want to hear about would Jesus eat fry bread? Right. Well, see, this is how it ties in. Um, over the last couple of years, and interesting because we've been working on this book for a couple of years too, right? Yeah. Um, our book, of course, shameless plug. Decolonizing evangelicalism, an 11.59 p.m. conversation. So so we've been thinking a whole lot about evangelicalism, but but not that it's not been on everyone else's mind because of those people who've been voting for Trump regardless. Although, you know, he lost a lot of those the, that vote. Uh, hmm. So... Um, so he, he didn't he didn't maintain the full 81 percent of the 2016 election. Yeah, that's what I heard. But oh, I okay. heard statistics. Yeah, I haven't heard much about it since this most recent election. Kind of hopeful, but we'll see what happened. So anyway, I, I did, uh, you know, I, I guess we've always worked with uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and their various uh, organizations and um, divisions, especially multi-ethnic and their native stuff uh, at different times throughout the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years. Um, so, you know, we have some friends uh, involved with that. And then uh, Crew, which uh, used to be called Campus Crew Crusade for Christ. Now they just go by Crew, um, which... You know, I think so. Probably a good choice. Yeah, it's probably a good. It's a good uh, modification change yeah, there. Yeah. And you're with Campus Crusade for Christ, and then the next thing you do is turn around and look for people with wielding swords and you know, <laughs> the Knights Templar, Italians and Knights Templar. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you're crusading, huh? Uh, so, so crew, and then they have a group called Crew Nations, who a couple uh, good friends, uh, uh, Donnie Begay and uh, Renee Begay. Um, uh, kind of lead. And um, yeah, so we were invited this year. They, they have something every year, the native folks uh, crew and InterVarsity do this together. And it's called huh. would Jesus eat fry bread? And I, I think it's maybe like eight, this was their eighth year or something. Edith and I were the uh, uh, special guests this year. We did a Friday, Saturday and Sunday, um, you know, presentations. And then we were part of the elders group that met with, students at different points and so and it was uh, it actually went pretty well um you know i mean um and, and but i'm finding the, the thing is is that you know the uh, would jesus eat fry bread just sort of their moniker that they gather under because it became a controversial thing at one point you know health concerns about our native people and fry bread is not that healthy right <laughs> Right. Now, for those who are uninitiated, Frybit is delicious. Oh, my gosh. It's, it it's is a, delicious, yes. It is a, a delicacy, but uh, in some circles, it is a staple. And so uh, that's where it gets a little tricky. Now, Randy, do you prefer... Well, it also, 
wait a minute. It, it, it has this, it's like there's a magical effect it has as well. Okay. Mm. So when we were first married, Edith would make fry bread all the time. We'd have fry bread and beans and fry bread and steak and fry bread and stew. And, you know, we have a lot of fry bread and she's an incredible fry bread maker, by the way. Um, but she hardly makes it. She may, it doesn't even make it maybe once a year now because somehow it had this crazy effect on my clothing. <laughs> and like all my t-shirts started like raising up over my belly button and I couldn't get them to go down anymore. And I, I don't know what the correlation was, but uh, some we, we had to basically uh, stop or else I'd have to buy longer t-shirts. So, yeah. <laughs> so for those who have never had fry bread, first of all, it is delicious, but do you prefer it with cornmeal or uh, regular flour? Well, I prefer the way my wife makes it, and that's okay. with flour. Now, um, there's a number of different ways people do fry bread. And up in Canada, they actually uh, uh, create it in a little different way, and they call it bannock. Um, and then I think in maybe southern Arizona, there's some tribes that call it pop-ups. Sorry about that. Um, in southern Arizona, there's some tribes I think they call them popovers or something like that. But okay. um, but mostly it's fry bread, and then the Navajos because they're so large, uh, they such a large nation. Um, they they like to call it you know uh, Navajo tacos instead of Indian yes, tacos. Yes. Navajo fry bread uh, instead of Indian fry bread. But um, you know, but they they make some pretty good fry bread down there, especially in a mutton sandwich with a green chili. Oh man, that Whoa. is so hey. Anyway, um, these evangelical organizations continue to call on me, which is a surprise. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I'll hang with anybody. That's always been my motto. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to separate myself just because of a person doesn't believe the same as me. I think, you know, okay. hey, we're all human beings. And so we have that in common. And, you know, that, that's enough for me. So what is the controversy? Why, uh, why is the, the question controversial? Would Jesus eat fry bread? Well, because what we found out, you know, and it you know, didn't take a, a rocket science to find this out, but uh, um, that, you know, when you take a bunch of uh, flour, usually white flour and uh, salt and, uh, you know, uh, milk or water or, or uh, dry milk or however it is you make it, everybody's got their own recipes. And you throw it in a bunch of lard, you know, some grease, and uh, and you just let it. Uh, so people from county fairs will recognize this sort of like elephant ears, right? That's the mm-hmm. kind of the the, yeah. the normalized dominant cultural name for what's happening here. And uh, but we just say fry bread. Uh, that it's not very healthy for you, right? And our <laughs> native people have horrible health. We're a lot of us are diabetic, um, you know, um, uh, obese. Um, heart disease and lots of other chronic diseases, which have to do with our particular diet. Um, uh, of, of, you know, we're not eating our native foods anymore. And so there's a whole movement back to native foods, which we're a part of, you know. Um, but then there's this whole thing about like, they came out with the no signs over fry bread, like, you know, no oh. fry bread. Yeah. Um, then they, you know, the circle with the, the line. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and then T-shirts came started coming out and bumper stickers, you know. <laughs> so somewhere somewhere in the middle of all that, they they asked the question, "Well, would these uh, 
uh, the crew nations and others ask the question, would Jesus eat fried bread? Right? Oh, interesting. So, uh, so, so that just became their moniker. And, uh, uh, and so like, then, then the next question is, well, how often would Jesus eat fried bread? <laughs> <laughs> so once we answer yes, then it becomes how frequently. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like I'm, I'm maybe lucky if I get it once a year, which is probably okay for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in my health. So. so you got invited, you and Edith got to speak of this thing. It was a, a weekend, a whole weekend, right? Yeah, it took a lot of, I mean, it took up the whole weekend. Yeah. And how did it go? I think it went great. Um, I had, you know, a lot of students asking questions. I think probably at least two thirds, maybe uh, three fourths of the students were native. Uh-huh. Um, and I think there's maybe 150 people there altogether. So Always good when we can get native people together, especially young people and older people, and they we have a chance to interact and and talk about things and hear their questions and hear, you know, I think especially the the questions that they are ans- asking, so that we're not answering questions they're not answering, right? Yeah. So um, so that was always a part of it, uh, and um, you know, and and a lot of their questions have to do with you know native culture and what they've been taught by missionaries and others. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are trying to decolonize, and you know, okay. I just think there's a a lot of hope right now, um, uh-huh. not just among Christian young people or followers of Jesus, but just along the among the millennial generation in um, uh, in general. There's a lot of hope for me in the questions they're asking and the, and the willingness to get on the line and go out and protest or mm-hmm. do whatever they have to do on social media uh, to, to basically say, we're not going to accept our, our, the old paradigm anymore. We don't, we don't want racism. We don't want classism. We don't want mm-hmm. genderism. We don't want, you know, any of these kinds of things that have been handed down as, well, that's just the way the world is. And so I think uh, the millennials and in, in Gen Z are, basically leading uh, us to a new uh, way of looking at life. And, and I'm happy for it because as a baby boomer, you know, this was sort of where our generation was. Mm, and, yeah. You know, I grew up with, a, you know, Vietnam War is probably the most still the most impactful thing that ever happened in my lifetime. You know, I knew people who went over. I knew people who died as a, you know, I was a young person um, and it ended uh, while I was just before I graduated, the, the war ended. But um, I had relatives and lots of others and people who got killed who I knew. And and, and we watched that war on TV, by the way, um, different than the war, wars they have now. They won't let you right. watch. Uh, yeah, out of sight. Yeah. We would watch to see if we had ever showed anyone we knew, you know. Uh, and then we watched them come back from it and how sad that was, you know. Uh, the veterans who came back, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. I remember when he was shot. I remember when Bobby Kennedy was shot. I even remember as a younger kid when JFK was shot. Wow. Um, but but I didn't really know much. I wasn't very coherent about it. But I remember my older cousin who I idolized. Uh, JFK was his hero. And so that then that way uh, I understood that it was something important. <clears throat> and then, um, you know, of course, Nixon uh, being taken out, you know, we've, it's, you know, Trump's not the first crook we've ever seen in office. You know, we saw <laughs> Tricky Dick Nixon, um, who, who <laughs> I would prefer, you know, a <laughs> hundred times more than the current occupant. But, uh, um, 
So yeah, all of those kinds of things. We wanted to change the world. The people around us wanted to change the world. It was the advent of the hippie movement, the peace, love, drugs, you know. Um, And uh, you couldn't help but be affected by it. Everybody was affected by it. Uh, Mm. And our, you know, those are the days that AIM, American Indian Movement, came about, and um, and uh, Black Panthers, and all these other different kinds of movements that said, you know, hey. Uh, we're not going to take it anymore. And so I see that spirit, that same resistance in uh-huh. the millennial generation and in, even in Gen Z some. And uh, I'm actually happy that I live to see this day. I didn't know that I ever would, even though I'd hoped for it. So Yeah, that is a really hopeful note. And, you know, before we started recording, you and I were saying that several of the institutions or organizations that we interact with, there is a noticeable um, generational gap, you might want to call it, or a shift uh, in the undercurrent that the younger generation, let's say 30 and under, you can go 35 and under, they're just very concerned about different things than the older generation that's currently sort of running the organizations or institutions. Mm-hmm. And so they are asking, like you said, a different set of questions. And, you know, that was actually really um, good when you and I compared notes on that, that um, we're seeing this in several different groups that we interact with, or uh, each of us has been asked to, like you're a coach or a mentor in several networks. And uh, I've been asked to come in and sort of be a, a catalyst uh, for conversation and maybe to ask a difficult question to, to get things started. Or one group I actually got to, um, they just asked me to listen for two hours as they talked and then to give them some reflection at the uh-huh. end. Felt very honored to do. Yeah, yeah that would be and, great. Yeah. And I was able to just name some themes that um, they thought that they weren't seeing eye to eye on. And I, I was able to say, um, you know, I, I actually think that you're all addressing, the, the, even though you're disagreeing, you're addressing the same issue. You're just coming at it from two different ways. It was a really one of the better things I've ever got to be a part of. I just felt very honored to do it. Uh, recently, you and I were on a, a Zoom call uh, down under. Oh, yeah. We, Aussie time. Yeah, we got to interact with a, a group that's trying some really uh, – what I thought were pretty innovative decolonial uh, moves within their organization. So, yeah, I think that it is an interesting time and that there is reason um, to be hopeful because you do see it in that generational gap. And maybe it's not a gap. Maybe it's um, just a different direction and a different emphasis, but it is noticeable. Well, I think they're saying they want a different future, which I want a different future. Uh, and and I, I think this is something that, um, you know, it's it's the same old thing, right? Um, you have those who want to change the structure and those who want to maintain homeostasis or just keep the, the structure yeah. as it is because, uh, hey, it provides jobs, it provides whatever, you know. You economists know. always love to see, uh, you know, uh, uh, stabilization of the economy because yeah. then they can predict the future and they can get rich, right? So um, I'm a little maybe like drawn more toward uh, some kind of uh, chaos that's going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm, 
I'm very hopeful. Um, I think the Democratic Party is uh, got its work cut out for it uh, because um, uh, as divided as the Republicans and the Democrats are, mm-hmm. uh, there's probably as almost as sharp as divide uh, between the uh, the more radical wings, which mm-hmm. I would consider my part of uh, right now. Uh, of the Democratic Party and the moderate wings. Yep. And so um, so we're just going to have to watch and see what happens. But hopefully what has happened in the past, mm-hmm. oh, I know, well, if, if, if the establishment, uh, Democratic establishment continues to just say, no, we will have our way because, you know, we're in all the places of power, they're going to lose a lot of people. Mm-hmm. That That is true. Yeah, there's so much to talk about uh, in, in actually not just politics, but in economy and our medical uh, situation with insurance and uh, COVID has exposed so many of the flaws in our current uh, arrangement, whether that's in healthcare or in uh, health insurance. There's just so many things in our society right now where there is a definite um, attention or a chaos or a conflict or however you want to say that. And you know what I have picked up on uh, as a theme in so many of these areas is that it often starts out, um, the passion comes from ideas, that ideas are very powerful. And whether that's the idea of like identity about like who we are or about an idea of a preferable future, but ideas really provide the passion And at some point, I notice in every single one of these conversations, whether it's finances or environment, uh, environmental concerns, uh, educational change, like it doesn't matter what the area is. At some point, somebody who wants to resist the change gets very practical (laughs) and it becomes about utility. So like in politics, it's, well, is Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, are they electable? Right. That becomes the thing. Are they electable? And in like situations like you were talking about with religious, it's, well, what if we lose our givers? What if we lose our giving base? Well, absolutely. That that's this. That's what the establishment has to hold on to. Right. Yeah. That's their stability. Oh, we can't lose our donors. So um, but at some point, you know, uh, I think uh, integrity and courage, uh, you know, cause us to be brave and move forward and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, we need our pragmatist, you know. Sure. Um, but I don't think it's always this binary. I think, you know, there's ways to, we all have to compromise. We all have to, yeah. you know, we, I think old uh, Mick Jagger maybe said it best, right? Uh, he's a, quite a philosopher. <laughs> you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you get what you need, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so you know. I, but you got to start from where you're at and then make your compromises. right? Yeah. I also noticed this in um, energy conversations about moving away from the extraction economy and, uh, you know, petroleum, a, a gas based uh, oil based uh, society and economy towards a more uh, whether you're talking about the Green New Deal or just like what uh, President elect Biden talked about with moving towards sustainable energy. Mm-hmm. Usually, the very first um, voice of resistance to be raised is that it's not practical, or it's expensive, or we'll lose jobs, or whatever it is. And but you can see that the the idea brings the passion, the change for innovation, 
And it's really interesting to me how the status quo, how much inertia there is when you just say, we can't, we can't change this because of X. Yeah. I'm, the simple fact is it's probably going to change anyway, whether we're proactive or not. Yeah. I'm, I, when you started saying that, I, I had this image in my mind of the Princess Bride and <laughs> you know, where he just says, morons, morons, <laughs> you know, because, I mean, how foolish is it to say we can't afford it when you can't afford not to? I mean, I, I love that old, I think it's a Cree proverb. It says something like, you know, after the last uh, uh, fish is eaten and the last river is polluted and the last, you know, it goes through those things. And it says, we're only then will we realize that we can't eat money. Yeah. You can't destroy the ground upon which you stand. Now, that is what's not sustainable. And that's what's not practical. And that's not, you know. But people are willing to sacrifice future generations for their own good now. And, and that's the kind of selfishness I just can't abide. That's, hmm. Those are morons. Hmm. I want to talk one more thing about generations. I was recently on a podcast with my friend Glenn Siepert. His podcast is called The What If Project, where he asked like really interesting questions. Like the most recent one was um, about hell, like to hell with hell or something. And uh, he did a whole series and he's got a Christmas one coming up and he does interesting stuff where he gets people on who ask the what if question, like what if, you know, we've misunderstood that entire concept and that it's not the way that we've been taught. Right. It's a, it's a really good one. Well, I was on for his, uh, it was his two year anniversary and I didn't have a specific what if question. Glenn and I were just sort of reminiscing about his journey and um, how much he's changed and just, all sorts of good stuff like that. But I ended up telling him a story um, that in 2005, I distinctly remember as a young uh, pastor in a local church context, I re distinctly remember when the questions changed hmm. that everyone younger than me, 30 and under, they no longer asked me the questions that I had been trained to answer. I was really good at answering a very specific set of questions, whether that was about global floods and the Noah story or, you know, whatever it was. I, I was really, I had got down a pretty good shtick at answering the predictable questions that I had been trained to answer. But I remember in 2005, I remember thinking, no one's asking me the questions I like to answer anymore. <laughs> They're asking me very different kinds of questions and questions that I wasn't trained to answer. <laughs> and I remember talking to people saying something's, something's up, something has changed. Um, you know, I would go and speak at like a college thing and I would do my little presentation and then we would open it up and they didn't ask any of the questions I was good at answering. And I wasn't good at answering any of the questions they were asking and um, I'll always remember the first time I heard Brian McLaren talk about this. He said that he grew to love their questions more than his answers. No, that's great. Yeah. yeah. But it reminds me of what you're saying about setting this up to, to make sure that you're answering the questions that are on their mind and not just presenting the stuff that you had prepared. So 
that's a really challenging thing, but boy, it is quite noticeable. And uh, it's actually one of the things that led to me in 2006 and seven, I started thinking about going back and getting more education. And that's how I ended up moving out to Portland in 2008 Hmm. was because I just recognized something has changed. This younger generation, they think about things different. They come at things from a different, but really their emphasis, they don't even care about the things I care about anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this, um, uh, I won't allow uh, and the groups that I mentor and the thing, this classes that I teach and things like, I won't, um, they have to come up with their own questions, right? Wow. So, so one of the things I really don't like that displeasure me is when groups get together and they say, okay, now let's break up. And here's the three questions we want you to ask. <laughs> yes. And everybody does this, right? No, sure. It's like, you know, okay, so so this is exactly what you're saying. We're telling you what you get to ask, right? <laughs> Rather than you coming up with your own questions. Well, nobody learns that way. They get exposed uh-huh. to the truth, but they don't really learn because it doesn't hit in their soul where their own questions come from. So I encourage them to ask honest, not rhetorical, creative, complex questions that they honestly don't know the answer to and that they want to have a discussion about. Because uh, to me, it's their question is the most important thing that comes to the whole conversation, that it's a question that they have, and then that way it actually affects their lives, and their life changes as a result of their questions. You, Randy, that is so funny. And then one of the reasons I laughed really hard is, um, you know, I have obviously adopted a, a lot of your uh, teaching style, your the, the learning environment that you set up and facilitate. And um, so I have I have adopted this you break up into small groups. But instead of providing them the question, because here's what I figured out is I would actually sometimes put a question up on the screen so that even if you know, they got off track or went on a rabbit trail, they could still look up at the screen and say like, here's what we're supposed to be talking about. But almost without exception, when we would come back together and I would just go around the room and say, what'd your conversation sound like? Or what themes emerged here, right? They almost without exception, they would say, well, we didn't actually talk about that. And they would talk about something else. So I stopped providing the question, but it's amazing that without that safety blanket, their anxiety starts to climb. Like, well, what are we supposed to be talking about? But if I told it, when I gave you the topic, you didn't talk about that anyway. Yeah. So, so that's, uh, you know, it brings me back to that place in the book, uh, our book, Decolonizing Evangelicalism, um, where I talk about the, um, the superficiality that we try to, to bring to our conversations and how that's the opposite of love, right? So to, to have a loving conversation, it has to be a vulnerable conversation. It has to be an honest conversation. And it can't be that way if we're providing, hey, here's the parameters. You can't have vulnerability when you set up someone up for parameters for someone else. So uh, the vulnerability uh, comes when we stop being superficial, when we are faced with the crisis of, what is it that I really want to know, right? Yeah. That's why I, I do that. That's so interesting. I had not really thought about it exactly like you had said that, but you know what just came to my mind is that recently 
I have noticed with, you know, life is sort of on Zoom these days. I don't have any face-to-face meetings that people that I trust, um, we will have unscripted conversation. And so we'll have a little bit of shit chat at the beginning. And then I will say to them, how could I be helpful? Or what were you hoping to talk about today? Or what's on your heart? And I just trust them. And I haven't prepared it all. But I have noticed that sometimes if I don't have a relationship with somebody um, and they say, hey, you know, would you have time to talk, you know, on Thursday, can we get together for an hour? And my response, my email response is, what are you wanting to talk about? Because I don't trust, right? I don't have that built up trust with them. So I want to know ahead of time, what are the parameters of this? What's going to be the topic? But if yeah, I, I trust, that. if I trust, then it could be just a, a wide open conversation. Yeah, I do that too. But if it's something I really don't want to talk about, I just say, oh yeah, I can't do it that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I actually, I'll, it's not true. I just thought that'd be funny to say. But yeah. <laughs> making myself vulnerable here. But yeah. I, I, I do kind of wonder like, because I get a lot of calls and emails saying, you know, like who, who people who want to know, like, you know, prove me wrong or um, oh. who want to know, you know, why am I so embittered or, you know, how I have fallen from grace or, you know, oh. things like that. So a lot of people who, quote unquote, are concerned about my soul. Right. Um, and, uh, and and those are the, the kinds of things that that. You know, uh, if I think that I can have an impact, then I'll have the conversation. But if I think this person's already got their mind made up, they have a they have soap to sell. Right. They have something they want to sell me and then I'm not going to bother talking to them. There's old Cherokee saying we have. And it says, uh, you know, um, if you spend too much time talking with a fool, people will walk by and go, which one's the fool? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, things are so contentious right now. The argument culture that we're in, things are so inflamed and there's so much animosity and mudslinging. It really is uh, treacherous right now. Yeah. And I, you know, I have a whole lot of friends who just block people that disagree with them. Sure, sure. And I have, I actually get this comment a lot. Hey, how, I can't believe how patient you are with people on your, you know, Facebook site who, you know, are saying stupid things or whatever, you know. And again, my rule of thumb is if there's an opportunity for us to actually understand one another, mm-hmm. um, and I think there's going to be any kind of a, a change both in me or them, then I, I, you know, yeah, I welcome them on my, in the conversations. But when it's just a person who has something they want to sell, you know, and they won't listen to reason, then I usually just block them. Or anybody who name calls, I block too, because it's like, no, that's not that's not really going to be a helpful conversation. Mm. Yeah, if you uh, and listeners, if you don't follow Randy on Facebook, you may you may not understand how contentious his Facebook page is. <laughs> Man, you get more pushback than anybody I know. Yeah, that's okay. You know, I mean, I might be wrong. I was yeah. on, a, a, on a conversation with a rabbi yesterday in town oh. and I learned something uh, valuable. He said, every time I'm about ready to speak the truth, I, th- I think of three reasons why it may not be true. 
And then he said, and then I usually think of about 10 more why I'm right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. a good pause, you know. That actually is, um, that's really fantastic. And I, uh, I, I try, I, mine's not that formalized, but I do try and anticipate where the pushback is going to come to anything that I'm putting forward. But, you know, this actually leads me to the story I said I wanted to tell you. One of the interesting experiences I have had recently in uh, 2020 has been both eye-opening and discouraging because as much as I like to think that I can anticipate where some pushback may come from or where the criticism is going to come from or what somebody's going to react to, once in a while... I get in a situation where I could not anticipate how the other person, I just, because I don't think the way they do and I don't, I haven't bought into sort of the worldview or the ideology that they are defending. You can't know what you can't know. And so (laughs) once in a while, (laughs) so once in a while, something will come for what to me appears to be completely out of left field. And I will be dumbstruck. I really did not anticipate that being a concern. And so I didn't prepare any response. Uh, Sometimes it's completely novel. It's a a, a brand new critique that I've never heard. And it, it really causes me to go mute for a second and to think I, I actually don't even know what you're talking about, you know? So I had been invited when the Black Lives Matter protests and George Floyd and what they brought a lot of concerns that had been sort of marginal, maybe in the academic world or whatever. Um, They brought them center stage. And so this little niche thing that you and I talk about in our book, but also that I'm working on in my education with critical race theory, we've recorded episodes about this, went from being, I used to joke like when I would be at a conference and you'd be waiting for the elevator or whatever, and somebody would ask you like, well, what are you doing? What are you writing on or whatever? And I would try and give like my 15 second summary, my elevator pitch. I could barely keep anybody's attention. (laughs) And then all of a sudden in 2020, everyone's talking about critical race theory. It's like a mainstream conversation and it's both great. I think it's fantastic, but it's also truly surprising that this has become um, something that people are both interested in, but also interested in smashing in defeating yeah, I, I noticed that in some of the responses on my Facebook and some of the uh, uh, discussions that we have, people um, from the extreme right, uh, and they start listing sort of their, their, you know, the things that the left is doing, you know, yeah. socialism and yeah. uh, <laughs> um, uh, what's the other th- socialism, of course, is brought up every time. Sure. And I always say, you know, well, because they say socialists are doing this and they bring up critical race theory as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, that, but, but, but they always, you know, and I, and I always just respond, you know, well, 
you know, I'm I'm probably considered a liberal by you, and I'm a democratic socialist, um, but that's not how I act or I believe. So, uh, and this is not how my friends act who are the same. So, who are, who are you hearing this? Yeah, yeah. My favorite thing I've seen so far was from your friend Sung Chan Ra. Uh-huh. He um, he posted that he had just bought his very first book on critical race theory because he wanted to look into what exactly it was he was being accused of. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, ahead, story. Yeah. What, what happened on this uh, discussion? Oh. All right. So I got invited to be uh, in this private, uh, I don't know if you call it a message board or a chat room or whatever it is. It has about, I don't know, more than a thousand members um, about critical race theory and Christianity, or maybe it's just critical theory and Christianity. Maybe it's not race. Anyway, so I joined it because I thought it would be interested, but I naively thought that I might actually get to maybe help some people understand better how this could be like utilized and engaged in positive and constructive ways that especially for those who consider themselves religious or followers of Jesus or something, that it's actually a really nice set, a tool kit that helps you analyze the society that we live in and maybe the institution or the denomination or whatever group you're a part of. And I actually thought, oh, you know, I'll go in and, you know, I'll probably be, you know, the, the group is more conservative than I am generally, but I could be, I could at least be helpful and say like, everybody's more conservative than you are generally. (laughs) That's a touche. That's true. That's true. People, when people ask about my politics, this is last year, I used to tell them that, well, let's just say this for me, Bernie Sanders is a good compromise. I agree. My politics. (laughs) Um, Anyway, some themes have started to emerge in this chat room conversation, responses to the stuff that I post, or even just if I comment on someone else's stuff. And it was a very funny moment when, I mean, it happens frequently enough and consistently enough that, you know, it's becoming predictable. But I had a weird moment when I realized that the the accusations that were being made against me and critical race theory in general were eerily similar to things that I had heard you and Richard Twist talk about when you would introduce people to indigenous theological perspectives. And so like the big ones are that you're trying to sneak in uh, this, this, terrible thing you're trying to sneak it in like a a, a wolf in, in sheep's clothing so well, that yeah, act- people on the left are all sneaky so sneaky okay. that yeah. word keeps coming up you're trying to sneak and i say i'm not sneaking anything in i have a big sign outside that says exactly what we serve here it's like i'm not trying to sneak chicken in it says fried chicken <laughs> it's i don't there's no sneaking going on this is the thing <laughs> <laughs> but the other one was, um, and this is actually sort of a sad one, is um, that anything other than the way people currently understand the world. And so for them, you know, they think that Jesus is the answer to everything. And I'm, and I'm not 
interested in mocking that or they just, that's for them. Jesus is the answer to everything. Like what's the solution? If everyone just believed in Jesus, this would be better. Right. So, and that's fine. I, I'm not being critical of that. Well, I always ask what's Jesus. <laughs> oh, nice. Yes. There are many, aren't there? Yeah. I, I had somebody do that the other day and uh, you, you know, s- sort of said something like, I can't remember exactly, but it was like, you know, well, you just need, we just all need Jesus. And I said, the, the Jesus that was behind the genocide of Native Americans, is that the one we need? Which Jesus are you talking about? Oh, yeah. The, there was a slave ship named for Jesus. But for this group, what it ends up manifesting as is they say, any solution that you provide. So in this case, critical race theory, right? A, looking at who's at the table and voices of representation and historical legacies and legal stuff, financial stuff, educational stuff, environmental stuff, right? Violence. Any solution you provide that isn't Jesus, they see as anti-Christ. And you just can't, you can't deal with that. I mean, that's bubble world, right? It mm-hmm. is bubble world. Yeah. Create a bubble that uh, you can't get in and out of. They can't get out of it and you can't. Yeah. Get it. yeah. And it's one thing to say, well, I think Jesus is the answer and that's fine. I mean, if that's where you're coming from, but then to say any other solution that is suggested is therefore anti, you can't deal with that sort of black and white thinking, right? It's just impenetrable. Uh, the other two are that it's reverse racism because it uh, makes somebody's whiteness primary. And by pointing out their whiteness, that's reverse racism. You're like, <laughs> I'm sorry that you are staring in the mirror for the first time. But I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. The fact that your perspective up to this point has just been your perspective and hasn't been because you're white but that's how the world works now. So I'm sorry you're being initiated to this in an unfavorable way, but, but w- welcome to the conversation. Yeah, right. And then the last one is, um, I had put up this thing that said, if you actually read critical race theory, not because cr- what's happening is they're reading critics of CRT. Right. We get called, they call them cricks. Um, But you're not actually reading people of color addressing issues of race and injustice. So if you're not reading actual critical race theory and you're only reading critics of it, you're not getting the whole picture. And the thing that was brought back to me is, yes, our problem with Satanism is that we're not listening to enough Satanists. And I thought, well, once you're calling this thing demonic, like I... I didn't see that coming and I wasn't prepared for that. So I think our conversation might be over. So to me, a better analogy would be like, you know, uh, it's not that, you know, we're defending slavery. We're defending states' rights. Mm. Well, that is a little too on the nose because that's an actual argument. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's... So rather than talk about what the real issue is, mm. and this is the way that, you know, uh, sort of been the 
the white narrative throughout yeah. the centuries, and it still is. And and I, I mean, in one sense, you can really boil all this down just to white supremacy, and these are the the excuses of white supremacy. So um, I know I know it's more complex than that, but it, it, at least that's one stream, and that stream has always been here and has always defended. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the rights of whites above everyone else. Yeah. So, you know, if you, uh, uh, if you rather than deal with the question itself of what's the real concern here, mm. you deal with the uh, vehicle, which brings the concern. And so, you know, Hey, we got to deal with critical race theory, then the actual injustice that's happening to fellow human beings. Right. Mm. Yep. It is uh and it's, but it's an effective defense because by deflecting to a side issue, you don't have to deal with the main concern. Right. And, and the issue is really about how we treat each other or in the Christian realm, who is your neighbor? Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that's the real issue. When you get beyond all the smoke screens and, and all the red herrings, the issue still comes down to, do you want to be treated better than someone else? If you don't, then there's something you have to do about it. That is a good note to end on. Yeah. So what would we call today's... Uh, 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 we talked about fry bread, evangelicalism, <laughs> critical race theory, and uh, how to uh, discuss the Facebook protocol. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I might just call this episode Fry Bread and let people find out why. Okay, well, you know, hey, everybody, uh, have a good week, and we will talk again soon. Peace out.